Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now uh, from the Bloomberg Invest Summit in New York, Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital. Uh, Mark, it's great to see you here amid the hustle and bustle of the link, as we call it, the pantry here so at Bloomberg this is what Edward. the real people do, right? Run around like outside this? The, outside great. the confines of our radio studio. Brian, let me ask you about how you're uh, regarding what's going to happen tomorrow. It's not a risk event, I suppose. It's, it's three big risk events. Uh, how, much, how much attention are you paying to what's happening with the ECB, with Capitol Hill, uh, and indeed with the election in the UK tomorrow? I'd probably say that the ECB is number one yeah. with respect to what happens fundamentally because we've had, um, you know, kind of growth, um, let's say, volatility in terms of Europe, what's happened from not only an economic earnings but demographic side of things. And things have changed in Europe the last 12 months. So from, a, from an investment standpoint, David, I mean, how are we going to position there? And then what, is, what does that mean for emerging markets? Because remember, Europe and emerging markets are very tightly correlated. Uh, Europe's, uh, I'm sorry, emerging markets, number one client in Europe. So, you know, I think it's important, especially considering that the U.S. And, and the U.K. led the revival in, in equities in the fourth quarter in the beginning of this year. Then Europe played along, and now emerging markets have, have caught in some caught in a bid, so to speak. And so a lot of people are getting getting excited about emerging markets and what that means. So I think the, the big thing tomorrow is going to be the ECB. With respect to the noise out of Washington, noise. Just, it's it's just noise. noise. How liberating will it be to get through the U.K. election? When you look at political risk, does that, does that uh, stand as a marker to you that you're going to get past it? You know, I think so. You can take a look. At, it's a it's a it's a great question. You, know, you you see what happened in France and how the volatility actually. We did not see the big volatility spike post the French election, pre the French election. You know, we had the, the pre-election and then the real election. So, you know, I, it's a foregone conclusion that May is going to win. Uh, it, it, but but at the end of the day, again, how many seats did do, do, do the Conservatives win and retain and things like that? So, I mean, what's the direction with respect to Brexit and what does that mean for the, the total Eurozone GDP? So, and then go back to the ECB. I think that's going to be the key thing tomorrow. You've, you've written that uh, over these last six months or so, uh, what we've seen in terms of price returns has been driven by momentum and rhetoric, uh, not by fundamentals and process. How does that complicate things for you as an, as an investor? It's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, we no words here this morning. No, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's literally impossible uh, to be writing about the market every week and try to provide this great, grandiose value add that everybody thinks they're doing because nothing's really happening. The market's been in this tight trading range the last couple of months, and everybody wants to make try to make this big yeah. call about what's going to happen on the market. But at the end of the day, we still think it's about buying stocks and being in the right industries and sectors. And I think there's a, there's a big contingent of what people that do right. what we do and investors that just don't get that. Within this is the mood of investors. Do they feel like they've missed the market? Do they feel like they're in the market? Is there an irrational exuberance? My team and I were talking about this yesterday. I, I, we're getting the, the sense that 
that more and more investors that we talk to, more and more clients feel like they need to be in the market than want to be in the market, especially considering the kind of move that we've seen. And there, I hate to use this word complacency, Tom, but I, I just think that people are kind of boring themselves to death in terms of owning the same stocks. There's no original thought. And again, I, I, think the, I think there's so many binary opinions out there. It's either either or. There's nothing in between. And what we see is on Friday, David, all the gloom comes out. Right. I mean, you're, I know you're looking at, you know, kale sales in Brooklyn. Yeah, okay. Brian and I are looking at the gloom reports coming out on Friday at 4 p.m. World's going to end, and it makes for a great weekend. You know, reading Brian Belsky with us. We are within our world headquarters. We're, we're not in our studios. We, we're uh, within the sunlight here. Of, yeah. People, There's people sunlight. in sunlight, yeah. In Bloomingdale's, off in yeah. the distance. Good morning to all of uh, Bloomingdale's. Of course, <laughs> we're here. Our special coverage, our Bloomberg Invest Conference. Take us through your, your portfolio right now. What's, what's been doing well? You've, you've had a, a, a lot of success with technology. Uh, are you overweight financials as well? What's attractive about uh, financials right well, now? Well, you know, we're overweight financials and we're wrong right now. And, and I'm not ashamed to say we're wrong because, yep. you know, the bond market's in control of everything. And, and what we've seen with short rates, you know, the twos and tens, we talked about it on, on the television program here just recently or in the last few minutes. So, you know, we're positioned for the next 12 to 18 months minimum. And over the next three to five years, we think financials are, are the best place to be because everyone is so negative, David, and they're not positioned there. And they're, under, they're underweight, we think, financials in, in the way to be. But I think our best call so far this year is to, is to be overweight healthcare. It's been our contrarian call heading into this year. And our theme for healthcare is we buy stocks that keep us alive. You know, so we like the biotechs and the drugs and some in certain um, big HMOs. Um, but, you know, I think what's going to end up happening is uh, I think the biggest call right now is everybody thinks that growth is scarce and growth outperforms. So we're going to buy the fangs and say the same old crap. And for, for lack of a better way, I mean, let's have some original thought, man. I mean, let's go out and buy some stocks and, and own a portfolio and, and manage a portfolio. So what we've been doing in the real live money that we that we run for our Canadian investors for the bank up in Canada is that, uh, you know, we, we run portfolios of 35 to 40 stocks. All four of our products are all performing our mandate. Just principally because market goes down a little bit, we buy more of our favorite names. Market goes up a little bit, we've been peeling back. So we actually, this past month, peeled back a little bit in, in some of those FANG names, uh, principally because they've had big runs. And, and we don't think that type of price momentum can continue over the next three to six months. 12 to 18 months, yes. Three to six months, probably not. It strikes me that that's so workmanlike. That's so old school. To do the kind of deep I'm sector I'm an old analysis. soul, David. I'm an old soul. I mean, so many of people that do what I do are so focused on the macro, 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 and quant, quant, quant. And nobody knows how to talk about stocks or themes or invest anymore. Does it's the like, public want to talk about stocks, or are they all bundled up in passive funds? I think they're all bundled up in passive funds. I think, yeah. yeah. Again, more ETF questions from taxi cab drivers and car drivers than we do stocks. Is that right? I yeah. I mean, it, you know, I go back to the 90s when cab drivers were giving us stock picks here in this town, and I, I think we will get back to that point, but I think still we're, we're more focused on, I mean, the, the public is more focused on the headlines and the big picture stuff, and that's what's causing all the noise. You mentioned financials, and I, I just wonder what you see there. There is all the negativity that you describe. What do you see that others, others don't? Well, in the financial side of things, we want to be in those companies, what we call the big box retailers that have the complete menu, right? So what has been the crown jewel of the financial services industry, the big box retailers, the last two to three quarters? It's been, it's been the capital markets business, yes. right? 
So we had big trading volumes last year. We had M&A activity. So capital markets done very right. well. So <clears> why have they done very well? Because two years ago, we cut, 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 cut costs. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the big box retailers now, where have they been cutting costs? Wealth management. Right. So where's the flow is going to come the next several years? It's going to be into the wealth management channel. Okay, Brian Belsky with us, PMO. Very quickly here, and of course, our coverage of Bloomberg Invest Conference on Bloomberg Radio, brought to you by SEI, which means we get celebrities that yes, walk by, by as they come in at 7.05 a.m. Joining us now, Scarlett Fu, in at 7.05 a.m. Do you have a question for Mr. Belsky? Are we talking are you retailers awake? or are we talking banks? I just walked in and Tom waves me over while I'm eating my banana. <laughs> well, let's talk retailers. That's a good idea. Scarlett used to get up early in the morning. Now she's a big shot. She just comes in later. And it's no big it, deal. It what about Tom the retailers? Dana Telsey. Dana Telsey out with a really tepid note on Macy's so, after their meeting. So we just published a piece on consumer discretionary. As you know, that consumer discretionary is the most eclectic sector in the U.S. market, right? Most eclectic sector in the U.S. market. And we mentioned we had no mention of retailers in that in that sector <clears throat> in sector note because. We're really worried from a secular basis, longer term, what's structurally what's happening in retail. I mean, clearly mm -hmm. Amazon, if you take a look at the consumer discretionary sector so far this year, Amazon's 400 basis points, meaning four percentage points of the full full per, uh, uh, right. performance of the sector. If you take that out, <clears throat> consumer discretionary is underperforming. Okay. We got to go. Brian Belsky, thank you so much. Scarlett, if you lose the Lundquist jersey, wear a National Predators uh, jersey. What, join the bandwagon? Really? Yes. David Gurr, we're going to come back with Brian Belsky. David Gurr and Tom Keen, our Bloomberg Invest summit. For those of you that just got through the CFA exam, we're going to talk Nassim Taleb a little bit and Gaussian and Poisson distributions, which is a good way to get to Brian Belsky of BMO Capital Markets. Taleb, of course, is the mathematics of rare events. By definition, you don't see the rare event coming. What are the set of rare events you're worried about in the equity markets? Well, I think so many people are fo laser focused, Tom, on what's happening in Washington. And So that's and not a rare event? No, it's yeah. not a rare where, event. Where are they? Well, the other thing, too, is we just hate this whole notion of black swans. I mean, corrections happen when you least expect them. It seems to us like everyone is still looking for the correction, looking for the correction. When we stop talking about the correction, that's when the correction is going to happen. The exuberance, so, and it's not there, is it? it? It's not there. Do you see? I don't see it, David. No. no. It and so it's going to be something that we least expect. I, I mean, you know, it's not going to be North Korea. It's not going to be something out of Europe. It's not going to be Washington. It's going to be something else. That's all I know. Two attacks in Iran today? Maybe. Maybe. Okay. All right. No, but seriously, the re you and I have these recollections. I would respectfully suggest, Brian Belsky, it starts in the bond market where there's a bond transaction that gets left on a Wall Street desk. Right. There's some form of short, could be short, five-year convertible, zero-coupon bond. Something doesn't work in the savvy bond market, and then that comes over to the equity market. The savvy bond market's been right for 35 years now, and so it's something probably in the bond market, but... I have not fear, but just trepidation, Tom, that's going to be a liquidity event, right? Some sort of a liquidity event. Is it private equity not happening? I'm something not connecting there. So, much, so many assets since 2008, 2009 have moved out of the hedge fund world with respect to um, derivatives into private equity. Is it something in private equity that occurs? I mean, again, I'm just speculating. We're not talking enough about that. So it's either something yeah. that we've become so dependent on, Tom, meaning bonds, bonds, mm -hmm. bonds, 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 or something that we're not expecting. Because of our Bloomberg Invest Conference, I'm going to rip up the script here. Brian oh, Belsky, the basic <laughs> idea of the passive-active debate. Now, you're getting paid to say active. I get that. 
where do passive funds fit in? No, I'm getting paid to be right, Tom. And, and so... Yeah, ask them about the Vikings when you get a chance. <laughs> that's my, okay. that's, that's how Where do passive funds fit in? Where does buying the index fit in? Well, I think buying the index fits in when... when creating credibility and feeling better about buy, buying equities again. It's it's a process, or as we like to say in Canada, it's a process. So we're going to we're going to buy index funds first, we're going to feel comfortable buying equities and then we're going to move into something a little bit more quote unquote sexy that we are interested in. I think investors in general are still worried about stocks. They still think we're the bad guys. They're still worried about corporate America. So if they make a little money in an ETF, whether or not it's a spider or a diamond or whatever, and then they slowly kind of transition back into pardon me? It's like a gateway. It's a gateway. <laughs> I'm not going to use the second no, word of that, but it's a gateway to you've it. Got, you've got these 40 stocks in the portfolio. How are you, how are you picking them? What are you looking at principally to, to decide what you're going to invest in at this well, point? Well, we start and stop with what we think with respect to the overall market, what our sectors <clears> are, and then build it from the bottoms up. So, I mean, you know, we have the very good fortune of knowing a lot of analysts around the street. So we look at how these stocks fit into to sectors, and we, we, lead, we rush out. We, we touch base with some of these analysts, but we also use some of our own models in looking at stocks. I, I, I have one final question, if I can. You are Canadian, BMO Capital Markets, Bank of Montreal, and all that. I mean, you've got to look at the fact, once again, there's no Canadian team in the Stanley no. Cups. This is a national embarrassment. But you've got to find solace that Mike Fisher of Peterborough, Ontario, is a natural predator, and he's Mr. Kerry Underwood. That's sort of a good thing. Isn't Mr. It? Mr. You know what? Kerry it's a Underwood. really good thing on several accounts, Tom. <laughs> But last year was the embarrassment because no Canadian team made, made, Even the, the, playoffs. Yeah, made, made the playoffs. Made the playoffs. That was a big you, deal Ottawa. last year. Yeah. yeah. Well, very good. We'll leave it at that. Brian Belsky, thank you for the thank hockey you. update with Mr. Carrier Underwood. I'm ro- I, I got to be honest, folks. Like, you got to root for the Predators. They, they, don't even know, they don't even know in the arena. They're going absolutely mental like it's football or NASCAR. And some of them are like, you got to go, okay, offsides. That was offsides. It's not like a big deal. Somebody just stepped over the blue line. I mean, it's a whole It's great. I love it. I love what NBC's doing with it. With, uh, with uh, Mike Emmerich and Mike Bloomberg. Can, can we uh, go Do you from care the, about this, David? No, well, you don't I mean, I'm you following don't it. Damn about not, not, <laughs> Where's Scarlett, Bloomberg? Come <laughs> we'll on, get, get Scarlett. We'll get her back here. here. We'll talk, you know, hockey. Uh, uh, what well, are we doing, David? We, can we go from the, the, the uh, Stanley Cup Finals to the uh, Super Bowl tomorrow in Washington, D.C.? Greg Gallier with a great, with an great note, note yesterday noting that the uh, sense of weariness <laughs> settling in. He says, we're sick of this, you're sick of this, and most voters are as well, but a big day tomorrow in Washington. And his note. Talking about the vice president, yes. as Dana Milbank did in yeah. the Washington Post. Dana Milbank's the Washington today. Post today, yeah. I think watching Mr. Pence will be good sport. Yeah. Uh, David Gurr, the president, tries to get out front of the festivities tomorrow. Yeah, Tom, you and I stay on top of the president's Twitter feed. Here's a tweet of relevance to our audience this morning. President Trump tweeting, I will be nominating Christopher A. Ray, W-R-A-Y, a man of impeccable credentials to be the new director of the FBI. The president deciding on him after meeting with him and John Pistol, the former head of the, uh, the TSA. Uh, let's take a look at some of those uh, impeccable credentials, as the president calls them. He's a graduate of Yale and Yale Law School uh, as well, and perhaps most important for the job he uh, is being nominated for. He was the head of the criminal division uh, at the Federal Bureau uh, of Investigation. Uh, so this gets that process underway, something the president was keen to do a and couple of weeks ago. Within a quick read of a lengthy accomplished biography, I don't see political service. 
that was with Senator Lieberman and others of Connecticut. That was one of the issues is do we want someone with a political heritage? And I, I believe we see less of that, if not none of that, with Mr. Ray. Yeah, he's now a partner at King & Spaulding, the, the big law firm, uh, as I said, head of the criminal division. And in that capacity, according to his official bio, he led investigations, prosecutions, and policy development in nearly all areas of federal uh, criminal law. So uh, we will continue to follow this news throughout yes. the morning. Uh, and we'll watch as the White House formally tenders that nomination. And again, our coverage tomorrow, David Gura, David Weston, and Kevin Cirilli uh, will be uh, tomorrow uh, in Washington uh, for the 10 o'clock, 10 a.m. Uh, Comey coverage. Right now, after all that, we try to get back to what we do each and every day with economics, finance, investment with Charles Duma of T.S. Lombard. Charles, you are as qualified as anyone in the world for the important question of where is our nominal GDP, where is that combination of economic growth and price elevation? Have you brought down your nominal GDP belief in the last number of days? Yeah, the um, wage data you had um, in the United States um, yesterday morning for, um, for, for total hourly compensation were, were extraordinarily change from the same number a month before. A month ago, they said the first quarter was up 3.9% in terms of hourly pay. Um, and uh, yesterday morning, they said, actually, no, the first quarter was only up 2.3%, yeah. which is like a huge reduction. And so we have to assume here that um, nominal GDP will be uh, weaker. But we don't think that um, <clears throat> real GDP is going to be impacted well, by this. We just think that inflation will be less. Uh, this is a really important dynamic, folks. And again, there's four ways to go here, both up, both down, or a mixture uh, either way. Do the central banks in any way think nominal GDP, even if they won't admit it? Um, well, to be quite honest, I'm not probably the right person to talk about how central banks think. We, we try to figure out what they're going to have to think ahead of time. Um, and in this case, um, you know, we, we think that probably um, Mrs. Yellen will want to get the funds rate up to something that's roughly matches uh, inflation, which means, you know, about three more hikes this year and, and um, be ready in case there is an inflationary pickup next year, which I'm bound to say looks more likely than not. Charles, you've been advocating for a long time here for a plan B when it comes to, to Brexit, for the UK exiting uh, the, the European uh, Union. I don't know if we're any closer to, to getting that or if we will be after the election results uh, tomorrow, but what would you want to see in that? What would a plan B uh, look like? What's your ideal plan B? Well, I mean, I don't think anything's ideal here, yeah. neither Plan A nor Plan B. Um, the, the main point about Plan B is simply that it should exist, because at the moment um, the British are, are, are being told by the EU people, the EU negotiators, that actually they have no option but to pay large sums of money and, um, in, in order to get free trade. Now, uh, it may well be that we should pay substantial sums of money to get free trade, um, and um, it may well be that's how it ends up, but the bargaining position is substantially weaker until such time as it's clear that we can survive and do okay if there is, an, is, is no agreement. What's, uh, what's this economy look like that the next Prime Minister is going to inherit, be that uh, Ms. May, be that uh, Mr. Corbyn? What, what's the UK economy uh, look like? What are the biggest deficits in that economy as you see them? Well, the, the biggest risk by far, it seems to me, is that if we don't have a well-conducted negotiating process about Brexit, then 
you're going to see suddenly um, a, a, a confidence problem in the financial markets and in the business sector. And people starting to say, well, look, this really doesn't look like a, a well-managed exit, and so um, we're going to get out first. Um, at the moment, people are assuming the worst uh, in making their business plans, but they don't actually have to fix their plans till the end of the year. So the government's got about six months to um, articulate, first of all, what it's really looking for, uh, and, and obviously that's an, uh, a negotiating position vis-a-vis the EU, but also um, what happens if the negotiations don't work or break down, in which case um, we've got to get by on our own. And it's a perfectly feasible thing to do, but uh, there needs to be a detailed uh, and convincing plan. Charles, you have a number of books on China. They have been remarkably prescient about everybody get over the doom and gloom and fear is China as resilient as when you wrote those books a few years ago? Well, we were fairly negative about China when we wrote those books. And um, I think it's fair to say that some of that um, negative feeling has become the consensus. Um, at this stage, I would say that um, China is going to be fine, at least until the other side of the um, big Congress this autumn. Um, and in fact, um, in all probability, they are going to modify their... Uh, target growth rate from the uh, 6.5% they have at the moment to something much more uh, achievable, like 4 or 5%, and thereby give themselves a decent chance of um, curbing the rapid increase of debt yeah. which has been going on until recently. So that's, that's really the crucial issue, is um, how they plan the trade-off, because um, they can't at the same time have fast growth and a relatively high exchange rate and... Uh, curb the debt growth. So uh, if they want to curb the debt growth, they've either got to have slower growth or a big devaluation. And um, we know they don't want a big devaluation, so chances are they're going to have to uh, go for a distinctly lower growth target. Now, that doesn't mean yeah. that um, they're in trouble. Uh, it just means that um, they, they, they've um, got to face up to reality. Charles Dumont, thank you so much for the briefing. He is with T.S. Lombard uh, in London. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. William Gross is with us, which is often, and he's been generous at Janice Henderson of of being with us for Jobs Day and such, but it is wonderful to have Bill Gross in our New York headquarters today. He's here for the Bloomberg Invest Conference, and that's brought to you by SEI, but we thank Bill Gross for being with us. Did you come by Greyhound Bus? You don't like to fly, do you? Well, um, I don't like to fly. I'm a white knuckler. Uh, actually, yeah. I was an uh, early Navy pilot that bailed out, so to speak, uh, yeah. and I took the Greyhound Bus. I, I didn't go as far as uh, you know, a famous football commentator that takes the bus. John Madden. Yeah, all yeah. the time. But I, I, okay. I creep slowly along Very, the, We should say Bloomberg land. Surveillance Today brought to you by Janice Henderson and Greyhound <laughs> Bus. They see each other often. Bill, when the last time I saw you in New York, I believe, was a long time ago. We met at the Waldorf uh, Astoria mm. in the middle of an ugly bond bear market. I believe that's where prices go down and yields go higher. You and the rest of the world wait and wait and wait for a bond bear market. When will we see that? 
Well, um, that's the question of the day and the year and the last several years, actually. Um, we'll see it, I think, when central banks uh, start to ease up in terms of their current policies, not only quantitative easing by the ECB and by the mm -hmm. um, Bank of Japan, but um, you know, more tightening by the Fed and, and less reinvestment of uh, treasuries. Well, that's the key question. Jan Hatzius at Goldman Sachs is now linked tightly those two, as does Robert Kaplan at the Dallas Fed. How do you link yield changes by the Federal Open Market Committee with the balance sheet adjustments to come? How do you put those two disparate flows together? Yeah, it, it's very hard to do that, and of course for the Fed as well. I, I know that uh, Fed research, since they instigated quantitative easing, uh, suggested that 75 basis points on the 10-year was the ultimate result. Now the, the exit, or the potential exit, which I've always been um, you know, disparaging of and the possibility that they really reduce their balance sheet, but if they begin to exit later in the year, um, they'll do it slowly. And, and so we're talking about 5, 10, 15 basis points on the curve in the 10-year, perhaps over the next year or two. You know, the important central banks uh, I consider uh, are, the again, the Bank of Japan and uh, the ECB, and to the extent that they're pumping in a trillion dollars plus a year into the global economy and global liquidity, that's been critical in terms of treasury rates and it's been critical in terms of stock prices and critical in terms of all assets because uh, liquidity seeks mm -hmm. a haven and, and prices move higher as it does. We uh, have Bloomberg News reporting this morning the ECB is going to cut its inflation outlook at the meeting uh, huh. this week. We're talking about what unwinding the balance sheet is going to look like. What's your timetable for that happening, uh, do you think? When do you think we're going to get to a more normal uh, role for central banks? Well, I hope later in the year for the ECB. And it's true that uh, the ECB's primary focus, as opposed to a dual or a tri-focus on the part of the Fed, is inflation. And inflation has not really picked up in the last few months, certainly, uh, in Euroland. And, and so you can imagine that Draghi is uh, simply not concerned and, and wants to err on the side of caution. Um, you know, uh, perhaps later this year, I know, or I don't know, but I think, as you know, uh, I've been quite negative in terms of the effects of central bank policies, not uh, simply because they've raised asset prices in some cases to bubble territory, but also because it degrades uh, business models such as insurance companies and pension funds and the like because they can't earn uh, what they're supposed to earn in terms of their liabilities. And we begin to see that with Puerto Rico and Illinois and Detroit and uh, ongoing problems with pension funds. But it's the same situation with insurance companies. It's sort of masked uh, as we move on in the future. Get the sense that 3% growth is this administration's white whale. And they talk huh. about it so much, maybe they're willing it, willing it to happen here. When you look at the tools at their disposal and what they're doing, are they using the right ones? Are they, are they going down the right path to get to that level of growth, do you think? Well, not yet. I mean, the proposals, I suppose, on fiscal policy, which is uh, something that I've been asking for and others uh, for several years, even with Obama, um, are certainly in the works. Um, I'm suspicious of tax policy, but the trillion-dollar uh, infrastructure uh, policy may help. But I, I think ultimately the growth is a function of productivity and productivity is a function of investment and we simply haven't had that. Mm. You know, my thesis this month in terms of the investment outlook is that um, you know, money uh, is mm. making money with money, but money doesn't lead to investment in the real economy. And I think that's the problem that Trump and 
the U.S. economy will face over the next several years. Bill Gross of Janice Henderson, he's with us now at our Bloomberg Invest Conference on Bloomberg Radio, of course, brought to you by SEI. Bill, I just looked up, if you really book now, $235 Greyhound, L.A. to New York, you can get it back. If you delay a little bit with Bloomberg Television, it may cost you $271. When you came here, you went out North Platte through Des Moines, and then you got up to I-80 and you take it over east. When you... I when you do this, Bill, you get a sense of the nation, and you've been dead right about the nation's financial repression. Don't talk to the fancy people in Newport. Don't talk to the fancy people like us in New York. Talk to the rest of America about financial repression. Well, you're right, and, and Des Moines has been my favorite uh, metaphorical Why do you use location. Them? Well, because it's in uh, Iowa, and because it's Midwest, and because there's corn there, and, and, and because... Um, Wrestlers, you know, too. <laughs> because, because people depend on savings, ultimately, yeah. not, not just in Des Moines, but the rest of the country. And, and why do people depend on savings? Well, for education, for retirement, for health. Mm. And when you can't earn more than uh, 50 basis points on your savings in a bank account or with a six-month CD, then there are problems aplenty in terms of the ability of Des Moines and other... Um, you know, middle-class Americans to reach their goals. I mean, I, I look at this bill and what you and I have been talking about since that meeting at the Waldorf Astoria, and certainly since August of 07, is it's not in Fabozzi. It's not in the books that you and oh. I studied on bond dynamics. How do you do Janice Henderson day after day after day, realizing none of where we are now has a theory or a foundation? Well, it, you know, it's sort of a... It's sort of a Braille-like uh, type of process where um, you feel your way along, and central mm -hmm. banks are trying to do that too. But uh, you're right. When you talk about demographics and debt and uh, leveraging up, and when you talk about the displacement of workers by robots and robotization, mm -hmm. you know, these are um, non-measurable factors historically. And so you, you sort of have to touch and feel and know that over time, these factors will work their way into a slower economy in the U.S. and uh, even globally. Yeah, you were talking about infrastructure just a moment ago. The president wants to get more private investment in infrastructure. What are the challenges to, to doing that? How does he make that successful, getting more public-private partnerships, getting more private investors to invest in American infrastructure? Well, there's a political problem. That's not my area of expertise, yeah. but uh, you're right. Um, Trump's emphasis has been on public-private, and uh, I think there are a lot of willing private partners, a lot of uh, private equity firms have uh, geared up to take advantage to make money from infrastructure problems. And so, uh, you know, if right. you combine that with uh, congressional action, then I think you have something to go with. But the, the trillion dollars is over a long period of time. It takes time to put these into effect, and so it may take a while. Very quickly, Bill, does the drama of Washington diminish GDP and dampen the animal spirit of the nation? Yeah, I think so, to the extent that risk is a factor in, in terms of forward-looking investment. Hope is the, really the essence of capitalism, yeah. and to the extent that the, uh, you have turmoil mm -hmm. in Washington and turmoil on a global basis, right. I think that's a problem. Bill Gross, thank you so yes, much. Thanks. I've got it from... Thank you, Greyhound, for emailing me. <laughs> Two days, 17 hours, 30 minutes is your fast trip back. Bill Gross is with Janice Anderson from our Bloomberg Invest Conference. This is Bloomberg.
David Gurr and Tom Keener, Bloomberg Invest Conference. And after the CFA exam and the level and mathiness of it, yes. it's a good time to speak with Jim McCon of the principal uh, group. I want to talk a little bit of math here in that if you've got a curve on a chart, you go to logs to make the curve a straight line. Yep. And then all years of my radar go up when the log chart becomes curved as well. Is this when I hear you yell slope matters? Slope matters. Okay. And then all of a sudden, instead of a straight logarithmic line, you've got a curved line. I've got that now in the 210 spread. I've yep. got curve flattening, and I have accelerating curve flattening. What does that mean to principal group? What does it mean to equity investors when they see an acceleration of curve flattening? Curve flattening is a sign that you're getting towards the end of a good spell for the economy. You're getting to the end of a recovery. Mm -hmm. It means it's a straw in the wind that there may be a recession out there. I don't think the other indicators point to a recession within the next two to three years, right. but it's one of the reasons you have to watch. If the vector's going to zero to an inverted yield curve, we don't need to do it on radio. People drive off the Garden State Parkway. <laughs> but do, wh where's the tip point where all of a sudden you say to yourself, I'm at 85 basis points. It's like a countdown, folks, the Ranger satellite to the moon. <laughs> 85, 75. 65. When do you start sweating? Or do you get to go to inversion? You, I think you start sweating when it gets totally flat. and uh, to zero. If, yeah. And I think that that's when you really have the, the, the imminent signs of recession. Now, the most likely outturn on the Fed funds rate right now is maybe two 25 basis point increases this year and maybe two more next year. That would get you to somewhere about 175 on the, on the Fed funds yeah. rate. I don't see that that means that the 10-year would be anything very different from 210 to 220, which is what it is now. I think what you're seeing is late-stage growth in the economy, which gets accommodated in interest rate terms by yield curve flattening. So I think this is actually pretty normal at this stage of the economy. We need to be a bit on recession watch as we go into 2018. I don't think it's imminent, however. We have a two-day Fed meeting uh, next week, and uh, it's, it's likely, or one would hope we'd get some more indication here of how the, the balance sheet unwind is going to go. What are you most worried about in the context uh, of that? What's the, yeah. the, the riskiest facet of that to you? Yeah, David, I'm not at all worried about no. the balance sheet unwind. You know, the, the, the build-up of the Fed balance sheet was, you know, 2008, 9, 10, and it was done by a maximum of 10-year bonds. Those are going to start rolling off next year. Just naturally, yeah. Just naturally. I don't think they need to sell much in the market. So the unwind doesn't really bother me. I think we're at a point where the economy has self-sustaining growth, though not particularly vibrant. And that's an okay position to be in, because it's when the economy overheats that you bring about capacity constraints in a recession. So I feel fairly positive about the next year or so for equities. The, the OECD was out today with its new economic outlook, and it was a fairly rosy picture, uh, rosier than one might, might have thought, yeah. perhaps. Uh, but one of the things the OECD flags is, is, is the need for more global participation. And I wonder, in light of what we've seen here over the last week, two weeks, uh, with the President's trip to Europe, with the U.S. withdrawing from, from the Paris Accord, what that portends for the kind of participatory global economy we've become accustomed to? Well, there's no question that this administration in the U.S. wants to see bilateral, not multilateral deals. Let's hope they get the bilaterals done, because to your point about participation, it would still happen in a bilateral world. So I'm not yet in any kind of panic about that. On the OECD numbers, the two things I would, take, I would question, 
Europe. Is Europe as self-sustaining a recovery as it looks? The positive signs from Germany, I think, are largely a result of last year's weakness in the euro. I think it remains to be seen whether the core eurozone can carry on growing in spite of getting to a point where the euro is a bit stronger. So that would be one of my questions. The other is China. Yeah. Will China continue growing at the is, rate they expect? Is there exuberance out there? Is there institutional exuberance? Is there retail exuberance? Not really, Tom. I think this is the bull market nobody loves. And that just, you, it just can't end because there's not a blow-off. There's no, not a capitulation. There isn't. There isn't. And, you yeah. know, if I look at equities, what will end the bull market? Well, I think you have to get to a point where everybody's in or most people are in. And to me, that feels like 25 times mm -hmm. earnings, not 18. If, you know, two and change is the 10-year yield, 18 times earnings feels fairly cheap to right. me. I think U.S. equities remain a buy on setbacks. Jim, just because you were going to show up, I had an extra hat trick of Walker's short. That was the reason why. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Pure butter. Make me I feel at home. For you in, in Scotland, we would be rude if we did not ask you how snap this snappy election is going to be. We can't talk about it tomorrow. So no. we're going to do it now. What does it mean for Scotland, please? Um, for Scotland, I think it's an interesting question. I'm hoping that the Scots don't go for another independence referendum. I think Theresa May, if she's reasonably powerful after tomorrow, will probably try to postpone and deny that. Because I think once you've got a big change like Brexit going on, to have the disentangling of Scotland would be very, very disruptive. I'd also point out, Brexit won in a referendum by about 3%. Remain, in the case of Scotland, won by over 10 a 10% win looks pretty decisive. It seems very early to go re-examining it. So I, I think for Scotland, this probably plays out as a bit of a non-event, but a rather ill-natured one. How heavily does this interregnum, this two-year waiting period for action on Brexit, weigh on the, the UK economy? Well, I think it's not weighed very much because it's been saved by the weakness of sterling. The weakness of sterling is what's meant that the economic impact has not yet been negative. I think there is the likelihood, if there is a serious impairment of trade relations with the Eurozone, which you know, looks likely, all the talk is of a hard Brexit, no deal or a difficult deal. If that's the case, then you either need further weakness in sterling or you will see a pretty seriously impaired UK economy two years out. I think this is one of the tail risks um, in the world economy right now. Chimikov, thanks so much. Greatly appreciated with Principal Group. Uh, today from our Bloomberg Invest Summit. Thank you so much. Come Thank back. you. I love how he shows up every time there's a UK election. <laughs> there's been a lot <laughs> of them recently. Yeah, that's I mean, coincidence, Tom. In all seriousness, <laughs> he's on a panel uh, later this you. morning here with Julia Chatterley, our colleague on populism policy and positioning, the macro uh, view. So we look forward to that on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg yeah. Radio. It is a Bloomberg Invest Conference from our world headquarters on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of A, ML.com slash VR.
Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.